Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About National Security. I've often gone to conferences, and the first question that I ask, and schools, universities, where students, professionals are studying or supposed to have an interest in security intelligence matters, and the first question I ask is, who is the director of CSIS? And invariably, no one knows. One of the most powerful, unaccountable officials in this country, and nobody knows who he is. No one. That's writer Andrew Mitrovica. The name of the director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, in case you don't know either, is Ward Elcock. And the reason most Canadians don't know his name is because CSIS prefers to operate in the shadows. It's an organization with secrets. And one of its secrets is the evidence against five Muslim men who are currently imprisoned without charge as potential threats to national security. None of these men has ever actually been accused of doing anything. All they've been accused of at most is potentially associating with the kinds of groups that would make them inadmissible to Canada. That's it. And all they've been saying all along is, if you've got something on us, bring it forward in open court and I will answer it. The right to know the case against you is fundamental, but it doesn't apply if the government deems you a threat to national security. And at the moment, almost everyone who has felt to pose such a threat is Arab or Muslim. We have to worry because uh, if it happened to us now, to the Muslims, it will happen later on to uh, any other group. And eventually this is a beginning of when you have a police state. This is, this is, this is how it starts. Tonight on Ideas, what's going on in the name of national security? The series is called In Search of Security and it's presented by David Cayley. It's October 31st, 2003, Halloween, a fresh fall morning, and a motley group of costume demonstrators has assembled outside the gates of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service in suburban Ottawa. They represent the campaign to stop secret trials in Canada. And they're here, they say, to trick-or-treat for the secret evidence that CSIS has collected against the five Muslim men who are currently in prison as threats to national security. Amongst them is Sophie Harkat, the Canadian wife of Algerian-born Mohamed Harkat. She's dressed as a devil, signifying, I suppose, the hell that she's been going through. My story is that uh, my husband was arrested outside of my apartment, taking out the garbage on December the 10th, 2002, on his way to work. And there was a big arrest to make sure that everybody in my neighborhood knew about it, could hear about it. And he's been detained with no charges in solitary confinement uh, since then. And we haven't had any access to the evidence or the proof that they have against my husband. You've never seen him again? I've seen him. I see him twice a week, but that's, of course, behind glass and bars, and we don't have any human contact. You're not allowed to have a hug or a handshake or anything like that. So you can just imagine the kids who are going through this, that they're not allowed to hug their fathers. I mean, this is a very difficult thing. I, I think the hardest thing of all is that I can't hug my husband. That's one of the things I find the most difficult of all. 
Mohammed Harkat is being held under what is called a security certificate. Under its authority, any non-citizen can be detained indefinitely without charge. The case must be brought to court, but any part of the evidence that CSIS deems too sensitive to disclose can be kept secret and imparted to the judge alone. Neither the detainee nor the detainee's lawyer need be told. If the judge upholds the certificate, there is no appeal. And it is to this procedure that Sophie Harkat objects. I'm also doing it for the, for the other men who are being detained. I'm not fighting the fact they're guilty or not, but is the process fair? I'm fighting the process. And I'm fighting the future use of security certificates because this is denying people from basic human rights, um, proper justice. That's what I'm fighting the government. These people are not even treated like human beings. They're dirt. That's what they are to the eyes of, of Canada right now. And there's no worse label than being a, a terrorist right now. So no matter where these people are going to be sent, they're being sent back labeled terrorists. It's a very, very dangerous label for these people. They'll be executed once they return to their country or disappear, tortured. So you can understand that we're very afraid for these people's lives if they're returned to their country. CISA's headquarters is a fortress-like building set far back from the street and surrounded by high fences. The demonstrators slowly make their way around the outside of the fence playing skits and singing satirical songs. Not a soul is in sight, except for a tiny knot of smokers who quickly scuttle back inside the building as the demonstrators come along the fence. After their return to the main gate, Matthew Behrens, one of the organizers, holds up a paper bag and entreats a stony-faced assembly of police on the other side to be let in to look for the secret evidence. This is a democracy, and in a democracy you have a right to know why you're being held in prison, what the charges are, and you have a right to bail. These, these individuals are not being allowed that, these, these five men. We think of these things in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, or apartheid South Africa, or Pinochet's Chile, but this is 21st century Canada. Isn't it amazing that people are disappearing off our streets and being held on security certificates without being told why? That's why we're here. All we're asking is that that secret evidence be given to the lawyers so that they can properly defend their clients. Their lives are on the line. They're at risk of being deported to countries where they might be tortured and murdered. So we're asking you to open the gate and allow us to walk in. You can search us if you like. We have no weapons on us. We've been trained in nonviolence. We're not here to harm anyone. We're here to help save some people's lives. Would you please open the gates for us? We've come to collect the secrets. Eventually, Matthew Behrens and two others squeeze under the gate where they're arrested for trespass and led away. The demonstration ends. Mohammed Harkat and the others remain in prison. One of them, Mohammed Majoub, has now been held for three and a half years. According to Amnesty International, all of them could potentially face torture or death if deported. Barbara Jackman is a Toronto lawyer who's been involved in security immigration cases since she was a law student in the 1970s. The fundamental problem in security certificate cases, she says, is the procedure. A federal court judge sitting alone with no information but what CSIS provides. There's no defense counsel, 
so the evidence is never tested, which allows Cesus, in her view, to make flimsy circumstantial cases. She cites as an example one of her clients, Hassan Almri, who's been imprisoned in Toronto since October of 2001. I think Omri is typical of many cases, that what the security service does is it draws inferences on the basis of associations. So Hassan knew Nabil al-Murab, the man that was detained in Chicago. Hassan had been to Afghanistan. I'm not even sure Cesus knew he'd been to Afghanistan before it started, but Hassan told him that. He'd been to Afghanistan. He ran a little honey business. They have an article from the New York Times that alleged that some honey business distributors were funneling money for bin Laden, but I think those were big honey businesses. He ran a little stall outside of the library when he was a high school student, and then he continued doing it after he finished high school, but it wasn't a big amount of honey or anything like that. So they say, well, he went to Afghanistan, he ran the honey business, there's evidence that some honey businesses supported bin Laden, and he knew Nabil al-Murab. And now just recently we found out they say he knew another man called al-Qaisi, who we were never told about before. But so now he knows two people that are of concern to CSIS. And that seems to be the case against him. He helped Nabil al-Murab get a false passport as well. But it's not like they have evidence that he went for training in an al-Qaeda camp or anything like that. They don't. And he never was in an al-Qaeda camp. In fact, he was in a camp that was run by one of the people from the Northern Alliance, which was fighting the Taliban. But they draw inferences from the associations. The one thing that Hassan Almri certainly did do wrong, and which he has admitted, was to help his friend Nabil Almarab get a false passport. Even here, however, there's a context, which is that many Syrians are denied legitimate documents by their government and so have no other recourse if they have to travel. The threat that Hassan Almri poses to national security remains unclear, and in public, unproven. But like the other four security certificate prisoners, Almri has been very roughly treated. For 15 months, he was held in solitary confinement without shoes, without the prayer rug he requested, without a sheet or pillow, in a jail, the Metro West Detention Center, where the temperature in the confinement cells was sometimes as low as 10 degrees. He was kept in his cell 24 hours a day, denied reading material, and prevented from calling anyone but his lawyer, with even this contact sometimes denied, Barbara Jackman says. It took a month-long hunger strike before an Ontario Superior Court judge finally ruled that he must be given shoes and his cell properly heated. Another troubling case, says Matthew Behrens of the Campaign Against Secret Trials, is that of Mahmoud Jabala. Behrens got to know Jabala and his family, and this is some of what he learned of their story. Mr. Jabal had been arrested seven times in Egypt since 1981. He was one of 40,000 people who was arrested in 1981 following the assassination of Anwar Sadat. And in Egypt, under the emergency laws, whenever anything happens, 
you're part of a blacklist. So they round up the usual suspects, and Mr. Jabala was one of those so-called usual suspects. So he would be arrested, he'd be detained for six months to a year, he'd be tortured with electroshock, he'd be hung upside down uh, by his legs with his arms behind his back. Just cruel, cruel, cruel things that were done to him. His wife was also arrested. Uh, One time when she was in custody, uh, she almost miscarried as a result of the torture. So this is a family that's been through absolute hell and they eventually tried to establish themselves here. And when Mr. Jabala's um, was visited by CSIS, they tried to get him to agree to certain things, to say that he knew certain people. And as is the pattern with CSIS, if you don't produce for CSIS what CSIS wants you to produce, they lower the boom on you. And in this case, they lowered a security certificate on him. And the security certificate was lowered in a way that was quite vicious. He was in an underground parking lot with his five-year-old daughter and from behind a bunch of cars uh, the RCMP tactical squads came out with their machine guns and and they threw him to the ground and they took him away and there's his five-year-old daughter left there screaming her eyes out in the underground parking lot and they left her there. And so Mr. Jabala goes to court in 1999 and one of the key parts of that hearing was when CSIS was asked, did you threaten to put Mr. Jabala in jail if he didn't cooperate with you? Of course, we don't do that kind of thing, CSIS says. But Jabala's 11-year-old son, Ahmed, had re- tape-recorded some of this stuff because CSIS was there in their house at night, and uh, they were threatening him, and he couldn't sleep, so he recorded this, and this was produced at the, tr- at the hearing to show that CSIS was lying. And this was what helped contribute, among other things, to having all these allegations uh, thrown out against Mr. Jabala. The quashing of this security certificate by Mr. Justice Cullen of the federal court was not the end of the story. CSIS had a new certificate issued against Mahmoud Jabala, although they later admitted in court that there was no new evidence, just what they called a re-evaluation of the old file. And so, in August of 2001, two days before he and his family were scheduled for a refugee hearing, Mahmoud Jabala was rearrested. He was arrested in a takedown style outside of the Islamic school where he's a school principal. So he's coming out of the school, he, he's there with the school secretary and with some of the kids, other parents are picking up their kids, and all of a sudden, there they are again, the, the guys coming in the unmarked vans with the machine guns and throw them to the ground, and he's taken off again. They didn't have to do this. They knew where he lived, they know where his lawyer's office is, uh, so it's not like they didn't know how to get in touch with Mr. Jabala, but it's not just about Mr. Jabala. It's about terrifying the whole community, the whole Muslim and Arabic community. So to do this in broad daylight sends a signal to everyone else that if you are associated with Mr. Jabala in any way, this could be your fate next time. Mahmoud Jabala has been in prison ever since. Other security certificate prisoners have also been arrested or brought to court with the same curiously massive display of force. The purpose may be intimidation, as Matthew Barron supposes, but Barbara Jackman also points to Cesus's vested interest in dramatizing the threat of terrorism. I think that they like to brag that Canada is a country that has 50 terrorist organizations operating here and that they have such an important job protecting us. And there's no doubt that there's a need to protect Canadians from real terrorists, but I think the service, uh, what do you call it, pads its statistics by reaching out to people who are not a security threat and including them in the numbers. And I can give you an example of that. 
we have a client who's a Palestinian woman, was a journalist for PLO Magazine. She's a terrorist because she wrote for PLO Magazine. That woman is not a terrorist, but because she wrote for a PLO Magazine, they've decided she is a terrorist, and she's 10 years with her kids in Canada separated from her husband. Another woman, Palestinian as well, had uh, been involved in humanitarian activities through the Fatah Women's Committee in the Middle Eastern country where she lived. And that was the only organizational form for a woman who wanted to be active in humanitarian and social things. I mean, she worked part-time at an orphanage, volunteered. They helped get money for food and clothing for children who'd been orphaned and things like that. She's a terrorist. I mean, so when CISA says we've got, you know, 500 terrorists in Canada, those two women are part of it. They're not real terrorists. Exaggerating threats, in Barbara Jackman's view, is not only a self-serving strategy, but a dangerous one. Because too many false alarms, she says, tend to make people impervious to real threats. You cry wolf too many times, and when there really is a concern, who's going to believe you? Like, I think if CSIS continues to draw such a broad brush over the immigrant communities and labels people as terrorists who, who clearly are not terrorists, then, then it just leaves you with no confidence in the system. I mean, I don't have any confidence in CSIS at all to identify a real terrorist. I don't, because I don't think they know a real terrorist. They're so busy trying to label everybody that they come across from certain ethnic communities as terrorists that they miss the forest for the trees. Barbara Jackman believes that CSIS has drawn its picture of terrorist threats to Canada with, as she says, too broad a brush. One consequence has been the spread of fear and disaffection amongst Muslim Canadians. Egyptian-born Ali Hindi worked as an engineer with Ontario Hydro for 20 years and is now the imam, or leader, of the Salahuddin Mosque in Scarborough. He has offered bail surety, though no bail has been granted, for two of the security certificate prisoners, and he has himself been questioned by both CSIS and RCMP agents. We have the feeling that they are not actually searching for the truth, uh, but merely they try to justify that they're doing enough work after what happened in September 11. So it's become like, you know, you have to do something. Even for argument's sake, if there is no terrorism activities in Canada at all, say, just for, uh, it could happen, you know, but it's not acceptable from them because now you have to do something. And uh, they have the, the more laws in their hands, uh, tools in their hands, and they, they, they have more budget, more money, they, uh, more people have been hired. Uh, so what do you expect? You ha- what is the results? I mean, you have to help produce. And this is, this is a, big, a real problem. You know? Ali Hindi has the impression that CSIS is improvising its tactics as it goes along. It's under pressure to do something, a mistake might be fatal, but it lacks agents versed in the politics, languages, and cultures of the Middle East, and almost anything or anyone might be suspicious. The result, Ali Hindi says, is a frightened community. 
at one time, you know, they, they were going like crazy from uh, house to house, you know, <laughs> calling on people and things like that. People come to ask me, I said, you know, you have to know your rights, you know, you don't have to talk to them, you know, if you uh, insist, uh, tell them, you know, there's a lawyer and we can bring the lawyer. So so people uh, get scared, you know, because uh, honestly, myself, and I, when I see the, they keep asking about, my, about me, you know, anything that uh, I do, it's amazing, you know, when I arrived to Canada this month and, uh, and also last month from overseas, I was arranging for a pilgrimage uh, arrangement uh, in Saudi Arabia. Almost they search every single piece of paper in my luggage and every item. And anything that they find, you know, it's sometimes, you know, they, I start to laugh, you know, because they, they make a copy and they bring translator. Sometimes they, it's amazing, you know, how they, they search every piece of paper. Uh, so it's like, Anything that you will do, you know, can be interpreted uh, differently. So this is, uh, you know, it's too much. We feel this kind of activities happening around us, you know. In the glare of this attention, even innocent actions can appear suspicious. On one occasion, Ali Hindi told me, he was leading a group of 50 pilgrims to Mecca when he was pulled aside at the airport by RCMP officers. How much money did he have, they wanted to know. He was carrying $10,000, the legal limit, as a contingency fund in case any of his arrangements for these pilgrims should fall through. But when he told them he had the amount he was legally entitled to carry, they became even more suspicious. Now he was not only a traditionally dressed Muslim boarding a plane with a curiously large sum of money, but also one with a suggestively close knowledge of the law. A dog was then brought to sniff him before he was allowed to board. Suspicion breeds suspicion. Ali Hindi also told me that he had been interrogated by Egyptian security police during a visit there. He had been brought to their attention, he supposed, by CSIS. The same thing, only much worse, appears to have happened to Muayyad Nuruddin, an Iraqi-born Canadian who was traveling from Iraq to Canada when he was detained and tortured in a Syrian prison. He says that the questions he was asked by his Syrian interrogators were exactly the same ones that he had been asked by CSIS before he left Canada. This suggests, at the very least, that they were acting on information supplied by CSIS and it hints at the same disturbing possibility as Maher Arar's case, that Canadian security services, acting on the slightest of suspicions, have intentionally put their fellow citizens in harm's way. Whether this is so is the question the Arar inquiry will have to answer. In the meanwhile, it would appear that some Muslim Canadians have good reasons for the fear Ali Hindi says they're feeling. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. National security is our subject tonight as we continue with a series called In Search of Security. It's presented by David Cayley. The Canadian Security Intelligence Service is entrusted with extraordinary power. Reasonable suspicion 
is sufficient grounds for it to act, and those it acts against can be exposed to imprisonment, deportation, torture, and even death. It hardly needs saying that these are high stakes, and that much depends, therefore, on the service's probity. But according to Andrew Mitrovica, the news on this score is not so good. Andrew Mitrovica is a journalist who has specialized in security intelligence matters with the Globe and Mail and the CBC and CTV television networks. In 2002, he published a book about CSIS called Covert Entry. It documents what Mitrovica calls a culture of impunity within Canada's spy agency. Here's just one story about a senior member of a department called Special Operational Services. One of the intelligence officers in the unit, whose uh, calling cards appear in the book, runs a travel agency on company time. For the research of the book, I called him smack dab in the middle of a workday on his CSIS-issued cell phone, and I asked him, I feigned that I had interest in, in a trip to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Now, did he tell me, look, I'm a senior member of Canada's spy service. I really don't have time to talk to you about uh, your trip to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, because I'm busy catching terrorists and spies. No, he said to me, I'm busy at the moment. Call me back in five minutes. I called him back in five minutes, and then he proceeded to spend 20 minutes on the phone with me, telling me what deals he had available, and then he instructed me to his website, which I went to, and you can see his name there, and on the website it said, call this fellow between 9.30 and 4.30, and the number that he listed was his CSIS-issued cell phone. Now, it might seem a picayune point, but again, it it paints a kind of a culture that people inside the service know full well that this guy is running a travel agency because he caters to senior RCMP and CSIS officers who get very inexpensive trips. So he's protected because he's servicing the people that ought to be saying, no, 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 do your real job. Now, has he been held accountable? Has he been disciplined? No, the only time he was disciplined was when they looked at his phone bill for his CSIS phone because he was using his CSIS phone to broker his deals and they said they slapped him on the wrist, but he was still brokering deals. This story is one of many similar tales in Andrew Matrovica's book. One of his informants, an ex-CSIS operative called Johnny Farrell, admits to breaking into the cars of officials of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers and stealing an RCMP entrance exam on behalf of the daughter of a senior CSIS manager. The daughter of another CSIS manager uses a supposed CSIS observation post as an apartment. There are frequent scenes of drinking on the job. Each case by itself is venial, but taken altogether, they amount to quite a disturbing portrait of a culture that seems at once arrogant and lax. Andrew Mitrovica also argues that CSIS is largely unaccountable. One of the people who is supposed to oversee the operations of CSIS is an official in the Solicitor General's department called the Inspector General. The post was occupied between 1996 and 2000 
by a career diplomat named David Peel. Mr. Peel began to press Mr. Alcock, the current director of CSIS, for answers to certain questions that he had. Now, the public message is that they're open and transparent. What did they do to Mr. Peel? What did Mr. Alcock more particularly do to Mr. Peel? Wouldn't speak to him for four years. Wouldn't answer a single question. Wouldn't meet with him. And Mr. Peel, in my book, acknowledges something even more important. He says that despite written instructions to Mr. Alcock, Mr. Alcock was keeping the Solicitor General, his boss, his elected boss, in the dark about operations. Now, what more of an indictment do you need? The story is surprising, but that's how David Peel says it happened. For four years, he dealt only with Ward Alcock's second-in-command, while the minister's request that he be kept informed went unheeded. One can understand Andrew Mitrovica's vehemence. He's been trying for years to stir up a seemingly indifferent public about security issues. But security intelligence bureaucracies, he says, continue to escape scrutiny or standards of performance. On September 11, 2001, we had what is described as this cataclysmic event that, according to the Western press, changed the world forever. Well, how did that take place? How is it possible that 20-odd men conspired in the United States to hijack four planes and strike at the entrepreneurial, political, military heart of the United States and the $30 billion security intelligence infrastructure in the United States wasn't able to find that out. The answer is that these are bureaucracies and that there are so many myths built around these bureaucracies that are promoted by fiction writers, by academics, self-anointed intelligence experts who propagate the myth that these are by and large professional, capable, dedicated services. I beg to differ. The real picture is a disquieting one and we have to come to terms with it and then begin to hold those people to account. None of the people the hundreds of thousands of people that populate the security intelligence infrastructure in the United States, not one of them, to my knowledge, has lost their job as a result of September 11th. We have to ask ourselves why. There are a number of reasons, I think, why Andrew Matrovica's book, Covert Entry, deserves to be taken seriously. One is that Matrovica names names, and no one, to my knowledge, has sued or publicly challenged his facts. That's already impressive. But what convinced me even further of the essential truthfulness of his book was an encounter with a 21-year RCMP and CSIS veteran called Michel Juno Katsuya. Juno Katsuya left CSIS in the late 90s, and now runs a security consulting firm called Northgate. He wrote an approving preface to the French edition of Andrew Matrovica's book, which violated a powerful code of silence. He did it, he says, 
because he wanted to let people know that the problem at CSIS is with management and not the majority of the rank and file. I had the pleasure to work with fantastic people, very professional, very dedicated, very honest and hard worker that has been working in an environment that is a very difficult environment to work on. What shocked me when I read the information in uh, Mitrovica's book, information that I wasn't privy to because I didn't work on these uh, dossiers at that period of time, was the kind of attitude that prevailed at the upper management, which I had been witnessed and I had observed throughout my career. But because I was within the system, you have to develop a certain coping mechanism. And at the end, you don't hear, you don't see, and you don't speak any evil because you need to survive within the system. You hear about abusers on some of your colleagues. You suffer yourself abusers. I am one who suffered abusers at one point or another. But you sort of discard those things because you've got to, be, to, to keep doing. And I've seen too much of those abusers. And now that I was sort of out of the system to a certain extent, I had to be their voice somehow. Michel Junot Katsuya is not alone among past and present CSIS employees in his dissatisfaction with the way the agency is managed. In fact, one of the things that struck him about Andrew Matrovica's book was the number of people who cooperated with Matrovica. Fourteen. Fourteen people spoke to Mitrovica. Like, you speak of one person, you can say, okay, we got to lose canon, because, as I mentioned earlier, speaking to a journalist is a moral sin when you work within the ranks. So one guy speak there, okay, we have a loose canon. Two guys, while well, we're really having a bad month, 14, you got a serious management problem. And they refuse to see it. They refuse to see it. They rather prefer to sort of keep their, their witch hunt, try to chase people, try to catch people that were not necessarily anymore with, uh, with CSIS at that time, rather than to turn the mirror around and look at themselves and say, okay, what are we doing that have now 14 of our past or current employees speaking to a news uh, journalist? Michel Juno Katsuya's reference to a witch hunt is borne out by the case of Jean-Luc Marchessault, which Andrew Matrovica relates in his book. Marchessault, Matrovica says, was a diligent and highly regarded intelligence officer in Toronto who became uneasy with some of the goings-on around him. People returning drunk from lunch. Car crashes involving CSIS vehicles that were covered up. Petty embezzlement. Favoritism in promotions. And the use of so-called safe houses for weekday trysts and weekend getaways. He tried to voice his concerns through the CSIS Employee Association and in return was slandered and hounded out of the organization. One of the reasons this shocks is that CSIS is supposedly held to strict account by its overseer, the Security Intelligence Review Committee, CERC for short. This governance structure was put in place when CSIS was created in 1984. Before that, national security was the job of the RCMP Security Service. But a royal commission had criticized the RCMP for its lawlessness and dirty tricks during the 1970s, and much stricter governance was felt to be necessary. So CERC was given the power to audit and supervise every aspect of the fledgling CSIS. 
But what happened nonetheless, Michel Juno Katsuya told me when we spoke in the fall of 2003, was that the new agency gradually slipped out of control. CERC has never been capable to really acquire the experience and the expertise to be capable to successfully keep a, a close eye on, on CSUS. Let's remember that we're talking about watching an organization that's spent their sole activities and training and have decades of experience in manipulating and controlling sources. Uh, so it didn't take long that the very junior people that came to watch and explore the activities of CSUS were overwhelmed by very senior intelligence officers that were sort of given to them as their babysitter. So my own criticism currently of CERC is the watchdog became a lapdog in the late 80s. So when, for example, CERC releases a report, as it did this week, saying there is no problem with targeting of Muslim and Arab Canadian communities, you wouldn't accept that at face value? No. What, what I see of problems within the organization is back in 1987, the director at the time, Reed Morden, uh, sort of passed a general marching orders, that, which was eventually accepted by CERC management at that time, that anything that touched management decision should not be looked at by CERC because it's a management issue. If it's an operational issue, no problem. But if it's a management issue, if it's related to a decision taken by a manager, you should not look at this. Well, the problem is, is that everything we do at CSUS, a manager has made a decision. And therefore, so there was sort of a, a big chunk of our activities that disappeared under the radar or away from the radar of, of CERC. So CERC has been basically just sort of a, a mere observer of some of the process, the mechanic of uh, running an, an intelligence outfit, but not really addressing some of the fundamental issues. What Michel Juno Katsuya says here, I have never heard from anyone else. Of particular interest is the claim that a directive from former CSIS boss Reed Morden successfully excluded the management of the agency from the purview of the Security Intelligence Review Committee. The more common view is that CERC is an exemplary governing body and a model of how the RCMP should be governed as well. But Michel Junot Katsuya is sounding a warning. The country, he says, is not aware of how unaccountable CSIS has become. As an example, he cites the lack of reaction to Andrew Mitrovica's book. Despite the fact that Mitrovica went and wrote such a book, it received very, very little attention from the Canadian public or the political elite. And that is quite problematic because some of those actions took place. I acknowledge that those actions took place and similar ones, and that is coming from a guy from within. And I'm saying that, wake up, Canada, because you might have a sleeping monster uh, that is currently growing up very, very fast, because as we speak, we will justify the means because the ends is, is intolerable, and it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable that uh, in the name of protecting ourselves, we will leave such a thing taking place. When CSIS was created in 1984, 
It replaced and eliminated the old RCMP security service. The change was based in part on a recognition that policing and intelligence are distinct functions and ought to be kept separate. For a time, this was dogma. Then came September 11th, and three months later, Canada's new Anti-Terrorism Act was made law. The bill, in essence, defined terrorism as a form of crime and mandated broad new police powers to combat it. In the process, every police force in the country gained anti-terrorism responsibilities. Overnight, the RCMP's security mandate was restored. But unlike CSIS, which is supervised, however inadequately, by the Security Intelligence Review Committee, the RCMP has no oversight body, just a public complaints commission with quite limited powers. And according to Shirley Heafy, the head of the Complaints Commission, this has created a dangerous situation. Without accountability, without preparation, and without direction, she says, the RCMP is now exercising new and extremely broad powers. Just on suspicion, reasonable suspicion, they can go into your home. And the police are required under the legislation to look in at what your religious beliefs are, what your ideological beliefs are. They're required to do that if they go into your house. They will go in and look at all your books and ask you questions about, are you a fundamentalist? They're supposed to do that. That's not something that Canadians have lived with. That's not something that we're used to uh, being treated that way and questioned that way. And uh, so that needs a very strong check. The RCMP cannot be allowed to do that without a proper check on what they're doing. It's just too much power and too much potential for abuse and Canadians being mistreated. And right now, it's a small segment of the populations, Arabs and Muslims mostly, people who are, are living here who have come from countries where there was all kinds of oppression going on. They're now in this country thinking that they came here to be safe, and they're not feeling very safe. And I can tell you that they're not feeling very safe because I have gotten, I get a lot of calls, a lot of... Um, contacts from people, from uh, Arabs, from Muslims who say, we don't like what happened here, but we're too afraid to complain. Is there anything you can do without me having to give my name? I'm afraid of repercussions. I'm We've gotten quite a bit of that. And I spoke at a mosque in London. Uh, there were between 800 and 1,000 people in the mosque and they, a bunch of them came and said, and got up and didn't mind speaking in the mosque and saying all kinds of things to me. They were afraid of this, this had happened, that had happened, but there was no way they were going to complain. They were much too afraid. That's in one city. What are people complaining of in these informal settings or when they call you or? Searches, their homes are being searched. I have some complaints now, I have a few. Some people have dared. There's one in particular where police came in in the middle of the night, just really ransacked the house, searched through their videos, scared the living daylights out of the people in the house, and um, went through all their things for hours through the night. 
Uh, by morning, no charges, no rest. But they lived through this. So that's one, and she dared to complain. So that's a formal complaint you are dealing with. That's a formal complaint that I, I, I'm going to try and deal with. Now, whether or not I get everything I need to handle it is another matter. Well, what is your situation under your legislation in that respect? Well, it says that I should have all relevant information to each complaint that's, that's made. All relevant information. But we're having a, a difference of opinion on that <laughs> between the, the, the commission and the RCMP. We really are having a big difference of opinion to the point where I'm going to federal court to have the federal court decide what does relevant mean? I think it means everything having to do with this complaint. Uh, RCMP says, no, you can't have this, you can't have that, you can have this, but you can't have that and that and that. And the fox is in charge of the chicken coop right now. What Shirley Heafy wants, and what the RCMP won't supply, is the grounds on which the search warrants in this case were based. The matter is currently before the federal court. But the problem in general, Shirley Heafy says, is that the RCMP have been handed responsibilities that they are scarcely competent to exercise. I think they're scrambling. They're scrambling an awful lot. So it's unfair. There's a certain element of unfairness to them as well, because this is a very difficult thing now that they're having to try and figure out in a very short time. Where did the training take place from the day the, uh, the uh, legislation was uh, enacted? Where did the training take place to do all the things that they needed to do to interview Muslims and they don't even know what a Muslim is? No, I mean, that sounds like a funny thing to say, but why would they be any more experienced? If I'm a police officer, I, I'm suddenly sent out to okay, go and do this investigation, go into this a Muslim family's home and ask them all the right questions to be sure whether or not they're involved with terrorism. Well, how did, where do they get the expertise suddenly? Where do they get the training? That's a hard position to put them in. Since I recorded this interview with Shirley Heafy in late 2003, several things have happened. The new liberal government has announced an inquiry into the case of Maher Arar. It has said that it will consider a new governance structure for the RCMP, and it has indicated a willingness to review parts of the 2001 anti-terrorist legislation. All three moves should help to address the untenable situation that Shirley Heafy thinks exists at the moment. The source of the police powers that worry Shirley Heafy is the Anti-Terrorism Act that was rushed through Parliament in the fall of 2001. The planning and execution of the September 11th attacks were already high crimes. But what the Act tried to do was to weave a fine mesh that could potentially catch anyone or anything even remotely connected with terrorism and catch them in advance. To this end, it created numerous very broadly defined new offenses and proactive police powers to go with them. Law professor Don Stewart of Queen's University has been an outspoken opponent of this approach. He thinks that it's unwise to try to aim the criminal law 
at a moving target like terrorism because it requires definitions and powers that are so sweeping that they are bound to endanger the innocent. And one of the new powers that he particularly objects to is the provision which allows police to detain people without charge on the grounds of what the Act calls reasonable suspicion. In normal Canadian law, we allow police to briefly detain somebody for brief questioning. That's uh, been authorized by the courts. But the concept of locking somebody up in a police cell or in a detention cell, and uh, unless they abide by rather stringent uh, conditions, they will be detained for at least a year, is something so anathema to what I thought was a fine justice system. That one really worries me. It's a draconian provision used by authoritarian states, including the one where I spent my first 20 years in South Africa. And it's quite clear that in that country, that particular provision resulted in death of detainees, torture. Things can get out of, out of hand where people start to believe that the ends justify the means. Is it possible to define terrorism unambiguously? I don't think so. I think uh, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. One of the most revered men in the world is Nelson Mandela. Uh, he renounced, he, first of all, his opposition to apartheid was nonviolent. Then one day, one fateful day, decided that they were getting nowhere after years and years and years. So his organization, the ANC, embraced violence as a form of, of getting rid of apartheid. He was implicated in putting a bomb on the train. Uh, he was hauled off and spent uh, 20-something years in jail, in solitary confinement on Robben Island. Was he a terrorist? Some people would say he was. For many other people now, he's a freedom fighter, a man revered and a man who got rid of apartheid because he came out with a lack of uh, vindictiveness in his soul, and he was a very eloquent speaker. So when we look around the troubled spots of the world, wherever they happen to be, can we really be so clear that uh, this person is definitely a terrorist, well, this person definitely isn't? Um, we seem to just go on the, I, I know a terrorist when I see one. And um, we already have uh, several instances in Canada when the, the judgment has been wrong. Think of the 16 people who were said to be a Al-Qaeda cell, and now we're all saying, oh, no, we didn't get, we got that wrong. We thought they were an Al-Qaeda cell, but none of them had anything to do with Al-Qaeda. Whoops, a mistake. No, it's not easy to define terrorism. It's easier to define people who do violent acts or threaten violent acts or actually prepare to do violent acts. And that's what the criminal justice system is usually done. We, we, we usually don't concern ourselves with motivation because it's too complicated. It's too un unruly. We don't know why people do violent acts. We shouldn't ask. We just say, if we've got evidence that you're preparing to commit a violent act, you've committed a violent act, or you're threatening a violent act, and we can prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, we're going to convict you and send you to, to an appropriate punishment. That's the traditional criminal justice system. It works in contexts like domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, robbery, everything else. So what's different about gang involvement and terrorist involvement? Nothing. But we've created these omnibus laws that are hugely too broad and might threaten innocent people. So my view and views of many of the other critics of Bill C-36 is that it's actually ended up to be a permanent stain on our justice system. It's not just a temporary measure, it's on our books until somebody decides to repeal it. And that will take a brave Minister of Justice who deserves the name of Minister of Justice.
In trying to define terrorism, Don Stewart says, the Anti-Terrorist Act has dangerously broadened the scope of Canada's criminal law. The distinction between security intelligence and everyday policing has been muddied, with every police person in the country now a potential soldier in the war against terrorism. In one case that I know of, anti-terrorism authority has been used against a Canadian political organization, a militant Aboriginal group called the BC Warriors, which was the target of a SWAT-style dawn raid in 2002 by a so-called Integrated National Security Enforcement Team. So far, this is an isolated instance. But the broad authorities in the Anti-Terrorism Act are there and can potentially be used at any time. Terrorism certainly demands an intelligent and focused response. But power without clear limits invites abuse. Michel Juno Katsuya spent his career in the security service, and he has felt the danger in the power it exercises. Be careful is his final word. It's like walking around with a loading gun and having our finger on the trigger. We've got to be careful where we point that gun and how we use that gun because a shot can go any time. And unfortunately, it won't necessarily be the intelligence officer who's going to pay the price, but the person at the receiving end. And that is what we've got to be careful. Increasing security, which has been the focus since 9-11, doesn't mean improving security. More security doesn't mean better security. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to Part 8 of In Search of Security by David Cayley. Our 10-hour series continues next Wednesday with a program about risk. The series was inspired by an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. Our thanks to the Commission and to its Director of Research, Dennis Cooley. Studio production tonight was by Dave Field. Richard Handler was the editorial consultant. Liz Nage, the associate producer. A transcript of the series is available for $25. Tapes or CDs of the 10 programs cost $75. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Email us at ideas at cbc.ca or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht and I'm Paul Kennedy. News follows in the arts today and between the covers.